Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, December 6th through Tuesday, December 11th feature guest conductor Edward Gardner and soprano Aaron Wall. The program includes Wagner's Overture to Rienzi, Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs, and after intermission, the inextinguishable Symphony No. 4 by Carl Nielsen. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs, the performance time around 25 minutes. Strauss didn't live to hear these songs performed, although in a sense, it didn't matter. For the lovingly remembered, long since faded soprano of his wife, Paulina, was the only voice he would have wanted to hear singing this music. Richard Strauss and Paulina de Anna made an unusually powerful, if often volatile, match. They met in 1887. She was 25, he was 23, before either their careers had taken off, and once they married, seven years later, they became the music world's most celebrated couple, although his fame and success as a composer continued to soar, while her days as a leading soprano would soon be over. The ups and downs of their long marriage were chronicled not only in the stories fondly recalled by their friends and family, but also in Richard's music itself, beginning with the full-length, not always flattering, portrait of Paulina played by the solo violin in Ein Heldenleben in 1899 and climaxing in 1924 when Richard turned one of their habitual marital spats into his new opera, Intermezzo. In the summer of 1947, their marriage, stronger than ever, inexplicably to many who had witnessed its daily storms, after 53 years in each other's company, Strauss read a poem by Josef Eichendorf that struck him like a thunderbolt. Im Abendrot tells of a couple at the end of their long lifetime together, hand in hand, as Eichendorf says, now facing death. Outwardly, Strauss brushed aside all thoughts of his and Paulina's mortality with his characteristic dry wit. A reporter in London, where Strauss went that fall to attend a festival of his music, asked the 83-year-old composer of his future plans. Oh, Strauss said, without missing a beat, to die. But the setting of Im Abendroth he began that year suggests how deeply he felt about a subject he couldn't bring himself to address except in music. He and Paulina had been through so much together, from the dazzling early success, and as mentioned, the royalties from Zalame alone built them the villa in Garmisch where they lived out their days, to the public failure of his recent music and the fear and anxiety of the Hitler years when the life of his own Jewish daughter-in-law was in jeopardy. By 1947, Strauss knew that their best times were over and that the world he had once known and loved and perhaps more than any composer of the 20th century conquered was now almost unrecognizable. But he had no way of putting all that into music until an admirer gave him a book of poetry by Hermann Hesse, the 1946 recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Strauss read Hesse's poems not only with the thrill of discovery, Hesse wasn't nearly yet widely known and far from the cult figure he would become, but also with the pain of recognition. For in these pages, he saw himself and Paulina hand in hand, facing their last days together. He immediately picked several poems to set to music. 
In the end, he wrote just three songs that together with Im Abinrod extend his farewell to life and to love. He worked on virtually nothing else during the summer of 1948, and when these songs were done, he found that he had little energy left. The following May, Strauss and Polina moved back to the Garmisch Villa they had been forced to abandon at the height of the war. The night before his 85th birthday, he somehow found the strength to travel to Munich for the dress rehearsal of Der Rosenkavalier, which had provided one of the greatest triumphs of his career 37 years before. Strauss asked to conduct brief portions of the opera, a rather sad and dispiriting stunt that was captured on film to the continuing detriment of his reputation as a great conductor. In August, he had several mild heart attacks at his Garmisch home and began to fail quickly. Near the end, he's reported to have turned to his daughter-in-law, Alice, and said, Dying is just as I composed it in Death and Transfiguration. But that was a young man's idea of death as a great transcendent experience, a spectacular ending provided for a blockbuster tone poem by its fearless and callow 25-year-old composer. Sixty years later, Strauss was bedridden. Paulina had been an invalid for some time. Despite his clever words, he couldn't dictate his own final chapter. But Strauss had always clung to his myths. At the end of Im Abendrot, when Eichendorf wonders, could that be death, Strauss changed das to dies, and asking instead, could this be death, he quotes the quiet, rising theme from his death and transfiguration. In September, Strauss died at home in his sleep. Paulina died the following May, just nine days before the premiere of her husband's and, in the deepest sense, her four last songs. They were immediately acclaimed as among the very finest of Strauss's achievements, music for which his entire career was preparation. Little in his output can match the beauty and depth of these songs, from the transparency of the orchestral writing with its burnished horn solos and shimmering bird song, to the radiant soprano lines, rising on Lüften skies, taking off in breathless flight at Vogelsang, bird song, and in one of the most unforgettable moments in music, soaring in phrases of pure rapture to match the violin's lofty melody at Zila, soul. A few last words. Since Strauss never dictated that these four songs were to be performed as a set, he indicated no particular order. At the premiere, they were sung neither in chronological order nor in the sequence that is now customary. It was Ernst Roth, the composer's friend and publisher and the dedicatee of Im Abendrot, who later established the performance order and provided the not-quite-accurate title that has stuck, Four Last Songs. In fact, we know of a fifth song, written for voice and piano, Malven, that was composed later in 1948 for the soprano Maria Yaretza, who kept it hidden in her New York apartment until her death in 1986, when it was discovered among her papers. A few measures of sketches for yet another Hesse song were left unfinished on Strauss's desk at his death. Program notes by Philip Husher on Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs. And now on to Carl Nielsen's Symphony No. 4, The Inextinguishable. The performance time, around 36 minutes. D. Eslugeli. Nielsen wrote at the top of his fourth symphony, not inextinguishable, but the 
inextinguishable. Under this title, Nielsen writes in the preface to his score, the composer has endeavored to indicate in one word what music alone is capable of expressing to the full, the elemental will of life. Music is life and like it is inextinguishable. He goes on, the title given by the composer of this musical work might therefore seem superfluous. The composer, however, has employed the word in order to underline the strictly musical character of his task. It is not a program, but only a suggestion as to the way into this music's own territory. Nielsen found his own way into music early in life. At the age of four, while playing outside his house, he discovered how to arrange pieces of firewood so that they made melodies when struck by a hammer. At six, he visited relatives and saw a piano for the first time. He never forgot the sight of the keys that lay in long, shining rows before my very eyes. With one finger of each hand, he played long rows of sweet thirds. Years later, an old beer hall pianist introduced him to the music of Mozart and Beethoven, and with these models before him, Nielsen eventually began to compose. Even before he entered the Copenhagen Conservatory in 1884 as a scholarship student in violin and piano, he had composed several string quartets and a violin sonata, all remain unpublished. His official Opus 1 is a little suite for strings written in 1888. That same year, he also composed a string quintet. In 1892, with hardly any experience writing for full orchestra, Nielsen completed his first symphony. He had tried to compose a symphony in 1888, but gave up after one movement. Although the work is wild and uneven, one reviewer compared Nielsen to a child playing with dynamite, it reveals many of the hallmarks of the composer's mature and highly individual style, a driving rhythmic energy and an utterly original sense of harmonic progression, and suggests that Nielsen was a born symphonist. For the next three decades, as he slowly turned out five more symphonies, this appeared to be his ideal medium. On July 24, 1914, Nielsen wrote to a friend that he was well underway with his fourth symphony, a large-scale work which is meant to express all that we feel and think about life in the most fundamental sense of the word, that is, all that has the will to live and to move. But after the score was completed, Nielsen began to worry that audiences would look for a story in the dramatic music of the symphony. It is meant to express the appearance of the most elementary forces among men, animals, and even plants, he wrote. Even if the world were destroyed by fire and flood, he continued, nature would renew it and man's aspiration and yearning would be felt. These forces, which are inextinguishable, are what I have tried to present. The opening of the inextinguishable is explosive and disorienting. The strings sustain a single C natural in octaves, while the winds scurry in D minor and the timpani pounds out E-flat and A, the so-called tritone celebrated in music theory for its instability. The harmonic battlefield that launches Nielsen's symphony is prophetic, for this work is about conflict. But what we don't yet realize is that our final destination is neither C nor D, 
but E major. For Nielsen, as for Mahler, writing in the previous decade, tonality is a process. Music moves toward resolution, but doesn't necessarily come full circle. The strategy of the so-called progressive tonality is that the conflict between keys and the ultimate journey away from home bass creates the drama of the piece. As Robert Simpson, one of the composer's greatest champions, writes, Nielsen believed that a sense of achievement is best conveyed by the firm establishment of a new key, in contrast to the policy of composers from Bach to Shostakovich. Despite the instability of the opening, the first movement does eventually settle, first in A major, where the clarinets offer a new theme in slowly descending parallel thirds like the long rows Nielsen discovered on the keyboard, and then finally in E major, heralded by a boisterous marching tune. The second movement, reached without pause, takes us to the other side of the world. Here nothing is hurried or confrontational. Only once does the volume rise to a mere mezzo forte, and the scoring is consistently transparent, even fragile. It serves as an intermezzo in a symphony that never stops for air, but keeps moving forward from one movement to the next. The long-breathed line of the poco adagio breaks the stillness. This slow movement begins as a large fugue, its subject an intense and anguished melody softened only by plucked string chords and the irregular beating of the timpani. The winds add an urgent fanfare which ultimately makes the circuit of the orchestra. At the climax, we reach E major again, but the key doesn't stick, and the movement ends ambiguously, with remnants of both themes trying unsuccessfully to regain momentum. The finale begins with the strings furiously racing in search of E, and then, once they have settled on it, with the forward march of a big, swaggering tune, a self-confident victory theme. Again, Nielsen moves through fields of conflict, both harmonic and rhythmic, culminating in an extraordinary confrontation between two pairs of timpani. Finally, after a quiet and suspenseful passage, followed by an outburst from the full orchestra, over which both timpanists pound furiously, E major is achieved in a glorious progression of thirds which have never sounded sweeter. The timpani have the last word. Program notes by Philip Husher on the inextinguishable Carl Nielsen's Symphony No. 4. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Thank you.